0: I want to start this morning in Joshua chapter 1. Some scriptures that I hope you already know. It's something that every Christian should know. Joshua chapter 1 beginning in verse 8 it says, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Let me ask you a question, folks. What does a successful Christian life look like? I grew up in church, saved as a very young child. And I love the people that I went to church with. I went to a Baptist church. Wonderful people. It's pretty large congregation. Wonderful people. Lots of activities. Activities that I was involved in from really seven or eight years old, I guess. And I was remembering back to some of the time that I spent there, and I spent uh, um, well till about age twenty-one primarily in that church. There were, uh, there were some college years in that that I was away from home and, and so forth. But I cannot remember ever hearing a word. Now, this is not a criticism of anybody. Like I said, they were wonderful people. They taught us everything that they knew, always willing to help. But I never remember any comment, any statement made concerning our Christian lives or uh, my Christian life at the time regarding victory. Victory just was not in our vocabulary. Now we loved God. We wanted to serve God all we could. And so we did what, what we believed every good Christian congregation should do and that was try to conquer sin. But we didn't know that the word was the key and it was such a frustrating time and I saw other people in the church that shared my frustrations because we were instructed to avoid sin to not yield to sin but we had no power to resist it and honestly there were well I guess the best way to say it is there was a lot of the Bible we just had to avoid we'd come upon scriptures like Luke 10 19 behold I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you we had no clue what to do with that now don't get me wrong I'm not saying as a child I had any real great responsibilities in that regard or whatever and my attention was certainly focused on other things besides God. I knew God. I, 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 my earliest recollections of hearing the voice of God were as when I was of an age that I didn't remember anything else. And I always knew, I always knew something somehow. Now I know it was the leading of the Holy Ghost. I always knew there was something more than what we were experiencing. And as a result, the preaching was to get people saved and to rededicate your life to the Lord. They had altar calls every time that we came to church, specifically for backsliders or rededicators. John Osteen talked about this when he was in the Baptist denomination. He said, I rededicated my life so many times I wore out my rededicator. I can relate to that. I remember what that was like. Now, we saw scriptures like Romans 1.16 where Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation. But for us, salvation just meant forgiveness of sins. We were strong on that and thank God we were. But salvation in our minds and in our thinking held no place for earthly things or times when we were still on the earth. It was all relegated to when we get to heaven. It's as if God said, come, accept the, the uh, gift of my son, get your sins forgiven, and from there on out, you're on your own. Now, I'm not saying anybody really said that. It came out in that, uh, in that specific way to say those things but that was the impression that I had and I never lost it as long as I'm in that church it was the staple it was the foundation for them but notice Joshua chapter 1 verse 8 again this scripture along with many 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 others most of which we avoided in the Baptist church like I said but this scripture spells out specifically and clearly that the word is to be used as a weapon to bring, out, to bring about success. Paul talked about the word of God being the sword of the spirit. And in his list of different pieces of the uh, armor, where he told the church to put on the armor of God, and he likened it to the Roman soldiers, the armor that they wore. There's only one offensive weapon in that list, and that's the word. The sword of the spirit. When I came into understanding, and and it's because I got a hold of some of Brother Hagin's tapes, I found Brother Hagin's ministry when I was in college, 21 years old. And it blew me away. The first tape series, the first tapes that I heard of Brother Hagin's is the Mountain Moving Faith series and he talked about the word of God as a living thing that would bring about results well who knew that and my first reaction to it I received it gladly but then I got to thinking can this really be true can you really change things by this thing called faith now we knew about faith In the Baptist church, church I grew up in, faith was a big deal, but it was always aimed at forgiveness of sins. It was always aimed at coming into the family of God or being saved. I don't know why we came up with the idea or anybody, whoever came up with that idea, I don't know why they thought that faith was only for the purpose of getting saved. When Jesus used faith and identified faith And talked about faith as being the important ingredient for people to receive their healing and the blessings of God. But somehow or another, that just didn't register. Now, in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8, notice it says, by keeping the criteria, meditating the word of God, doing the word of God. It says, then you'll make your way prosperous and you'll have good success. Now, folks, if God didn't want us to have good success in life, if he didn't want us to prosper, why did he tell us how to get it? If you're giving somebody directions to your house, it's because you want them to visit. You wouldn't give directions to your house for some to somebody that you didn't want to visit, would you? You might give them wrong directions. But why in the world would God give the children of Israel a roadmap to success if he didn't want them to succeed? Why would he give them a roadmap clearly defined on how to prosper if he didn't want them to prosper? Look with me to Isaiah chapter 55. I'm going to start in verse 7. It said, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, that means return unto God too. For he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, folks, if we just stop reading right there, and my background did stop reading right there. If we stop reading right there, we're left with the understanding, only left with the understanding that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But he's already said that the wicked should forsake his way and his thoughts. So the implication without question is that God wants us to think beyond our natural way of thinking. He wants us to think his thoughts. God wants us to think his thoughts in every situation in life. And that's the reason why God told Joshua to meditate in the word. This book of the law, or this word of God, that's all they had of the word of God back then. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Well, notice meditating has something to do with what you say. Meditation, Bible meditation is not some Eastern religion type thing where you sit cross-legged and hum. Meditation, as far as the word is concerned, Bible meditation is speaking the word of God. You speak the word of God to write it on the tables of your heart. So that you're equipped with it to use it when you need it. And he tells them what the result would be by meditating in the word, speaking the word of God, in other words, and acting on it in every situation you face in life. Then you'll make your way prosperous and then you'll have good success. He's saying the same thing in Isaiah 55 Think my thoughts. Well, how are we going to think his thoughts? He describes how we come up on understanding his thoughts. Verse 10: For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returns not there, but waters the earth and makes it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be. He's using a natural picture of the way that rain waters and affects the earth, then evaporation returns back to heaven. He's saying that's what my word's like: it comes down from heaven with a specific purpose to achieve. And then it returns back to him. uh, It returns back to him never without power, never void of power. Now, how does it return back to him? It returns back to him when we speak it. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, void of power, in other words, but it shall accomplish that which I please and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. In other words, he's saying healing scriptures accomplish healing scriptures concerning peace result in peace scriptures that deal with God's provision and his desire for us to have plenty on this earth, be provided for on this earth. Those scriptures carry the power to bring it to pass. All throughout the Bible, God's telling us the Word of God is a weapon against the circumstances of life and the work of the enemy. It's a weapon. Now, folks, I had no clue about that in the church I grew up in. Again, it's not any fault of theirs. They were teaching us everything they knew. They just didn't know any more than that either. But thank God we found out. Thank God we found out. What an advantage our kids have to grow up in a church understanding these things from a child. What an advantage. Of course, like most everybody else and and most other things, many of us fail to recognize what we have and we take advantage of it or take, uh, take it for granted, I should say. But at least we have access to the knowledge. So shall my word be. It shall accomplish the thing which I sent it to do. Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will never fail. Now, look with me over to Matthew chapter 11. Beginning in verse 28, Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. And you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now folks that did not describe my experience growing up in church. It was a a situation. My heart was tender toward God because i would gotten saved at such a young age I guess. My heart was tender toward God. And I struggled even as a child with condemnation. I knew I wasn't living up to what the Bible instructed me to live up to. I knew I wasn't conquering sin in the manner that the Bible says Jesus made available to us. Those were foreign concepts. And I felt like such a hypocrite, particularly in my teenage years. I felt like such a hypocrite because I knew that I was supposed to live a better life than that. But I didn't know how. The devil really doesn't give you a break on that, folks, if you haven't found that out. He doesn't care that you're not equipped. He doesn't care that if you only knew what equipment was available to you, then you could avoid the condemnation that he brings. He just piles on anyway. And I felt like such a hypocrite because I wasn't living up to the life that the Bible said that I should. I wasn't living up to the preaching that the church was teaching me. And the more you preach about sin, and you need to understand, folks, in the Baptist church that I grew up in, preaching about sin, preaching on sin, preaching against sin, was the majority of everything that they preached. And it worked. It made us believe. It made us to become aware or stay aware that we were sinners. Scriptures that would be used like, We're just sinners saved by grace. Well, the emphasis on that was the sinner part, not the grace part. And so people would feel guilty. People would feel they would be aware that they weren't living up to what the Bible standard is. And that's the thing that kept us rededicating our lives. We wanted to do right. We just didn't know how. There's a scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 11 when Moses is talking about the children of Israel going into the promised land. He reminds them what the good land is, the promised land is. He says something to this effect. He says, for it's not as Egypt, the land that you came out of, where you watered your seed, you planted your seed and you watered it by foot. Now that has a couple of different applications the source of, uh, of all water for the uh, for Egypt was the Nile river. So if you were going to grow anything or if you had land or property that you were cultivating anywhere far away from the river, you had to do something in your own strength to get the water from where the source is to where you want it to be. Now I've seen historical accounts that indicate that uh, uh, that israel that to uh, egypt, excuse me that Egypt used uh, treadmill type things to pump water from one place to another. Well, the poor people wouldn't do that. So the poor people were left with carrying water. And Moses is telling them by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost that that's not what the, the promised land is going to be like. It's going to be a land of hills and valleys and watered with the rains of heaven. Now, folks, the Bible talks about these things being types and shadows for us. And the first part of my Christian life, my Christian experience, was like watering my seed with my foot. It was all based on works. It was all based on what we were trying to do in our own strength. We knew the Bible said be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, but we didn't know how to access any power. As I said, we recognize that the gospel was the power of God to salvation, but that just means to forgiveness of sins. That didn't mean for anything else. I don't think there's anything else that hurts my heart more than to realize the millions and millions of Christians that are still in bondage to that kind of thinking. That genuinely makes my heart hurt. turn with me to Romans chapter 8 I am so glad one of the things I'm most thankful for is that I came from that place to know the truth because the way I used to live a Christian life was hard my heart was right love God then just as much as I do now but it was hard. Watering it by foot is a tough way to live. Romans chapter 8, I should recap a little bit of what the context of these scriptures is. In Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about the struggle he had between his flesh and his spirit. Now, we didn't even know we were spirits. But he talks about the the. the lack of ability on his part to get his body to do what he knew that it should do, what he knew God wanted him to do. And so he ends chapter seven by saying, who's going to deliver me from the body of this death? Who's going to deliver me from this flesh? I can't control. And he says, thank God is through Jesus. So that brings us to chapter eight, verse one. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus Who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Now that meant nothing to me because I knew I wasn't walking according to the spirit, whatever that was. I knew I was walking according to the flesh. And folks, that statement, that phrase, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, that phrase is is described and identified several verses later as simply meaning being saved. He goes on to say you're not in the flesh but you're in the spirit if the spirit of Christ dwells in you. Well the spirit of Christ dwells in those who have made Jesus the Lord of their lives and come into the family of God. So he's not talking about behavior here. He's talking about the action that brings us into the family of God. That brings us into walking into the spirit. But do you notice in verse 4 Let me go ahead and read chapter uh, verse 1 through, down through verse 4 in its entirety. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. When do we enter into that law? The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. When we make Jesus our Lord and Savior. For what the law could not do that it, in that it was weak through the flesh... God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Do you see that's the same phrase that's in, that uh, ends verse 1? Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit? Now, I don't want you to take my word for this. I want you to study this out and find it for yourself. The reality is simply this. The phrase, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit, is not in verse 1. Some reference Bibles will indicate in a footnote that that phrase is not adequately uh, supported by the original manuscripts. So what does that mean? That means that the translators pulled up the phrase in verse 4. It is there in the original manuscripts in verse 4. They pulled it out of verse 4 and attached it to verse 1. Now, why in the world would they do that? I'm not aware of any other place in the, uh, in the King James translation where an attempt was made. I, I'm, I'm not saying maliciously. I'm not saying they had evil intent when they did this. But there's no other place that I'm aware of in the King James translation where part of a a separate verse was added to another verse. And why would they do it? Well, a translation is only as good as the translator's understanding of two things. One is the language that is being translated from and the other is their, their understanding of the character and the nature of God. See, everybody translates Or interprets the things of God according to how they already believe God is. And that's why it's such an important thing to let the word of God create in us the right understanding of God. Rather than the understanding we might have through tradition or so forth. Some other area. So the translators must have concluded that verse 1 was too good to be true. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. That's the end of what they identified as verse 1. Paul didn't write in chapter and verse. You know that as well as I do. But when Paul concludes that in spite of the difficulty he's having, denying his flesh, when he realizes and when he discovers that Jesus is the answer, he's the deliverer from the works of the flesh, And he says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. The translators freak out. They say something like that can't be true. And if you've lived your life under condemnation, through ignorance, certainly, when you become so aware of the sinfulness of your flesh then the notion that you could escape condemnation, all condemnation because of what Jesus has already done that's a lot to chew on how prevalent would the idea be that we still have to work out our own salvation, that we have to Conquer the flesh on our own in order to escape condemnation. How prevalent would that thinking be or must be for the translators to take such an action as they did? Now, folks, I would submit to you that's the way that the majority of the modern day church lives. They want it to be true that there's no condemnation, but they don't know how to escape it they don't know how to escape it well how do we escape it turn with me to John chapter 8 John chapter 8 beginning in verse 31 then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him notice they're believers nobody could be saved in that day because Jesus hadn't yet been to the cross and uh, paid the price for mankind as his substitute. But there were Jews. Some of these, I'm sure, were even the Jewish leaders that believed on Jesus. They believed he was sent from God. That doesn't necessarily mean they believed he was the Messiah. It could mean that, and I'm sure in the case of many people it was, but not necessarily everybody, because Jesus didn't really talk about that part of his life or his purpose to be here on the earth. His purpose was to reveal the father, not to reveal himself. And so there were times where he instructed the disciples not to tell people that he was the Messiah. When I realized that folks, that upended everything I thought about Jesus earthly ministry. I thought everywhere Jesus went, he went telling people that he was the Messiah. Now he would refer to certain scriptures that pertain to the Messiah, and said things like this scripture is fulfilled in your ears this day so it's not like you couldn't have found out from things that he said or things that he did but that was not his purpose it was not the purpose for the disciples it's not what they preached they preached the kingdom of god they preached that god wanted things for you here on the earth just like he does in heaven And there were times where Jesus specifically told his disciples, don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. So Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Notice the word of God is the beginning point for the Christian life. It's not the end of anything. He's saying to those that are a type of those in the modern day that have been born again. He tells us as children, Peter says this way, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word of God that you may grow thereby. So he says to those that are a type of who we know of to be saved. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples? And notice what that word will do in your life. And you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. And you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. Do you remember what we read over in Matthew chapter 11? He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Those first tapes that I got a hold of from Brother Hagin's ministry. And I've tried to remember over the years where they came from and I have no idea they just happened somehow to come into my possession and when I started listening to those things man it lit a fire on the inside of me it was like I was drinking water for the first time in my life and it created a desire in me to learn more and more and more well I didn't have anything except those six tapes so I listened to them then I listened to them again then I listened to them again I can't tell you how many times one of those tapes came apart in the little cassette player, portable cassette player that I had. And I'd pray over those things every time. You know how the the, the tape would start winding around the spool, get all gummed up, jammed up. So I'd pull it out and this tape would be hanging. And I spoke to those things. I didn't know I was using my faith, but I spoke to those things and commanded them not to break 50 times. And they never did. But it created such a hunger in me. Folks, that's the part that I don't get. I don't understand how somebody can hear the word and not get hungry. I don't get it. I don't understand. And again, it's from my background, from the experience. We all judge things according to our own experience. But I know what it's like to be in church week after week after week and not be fed spiritually. I didn't know that at the time but once I began to be spiritually fed I don't understand how people can equate those two conditions I don't understand how people that have never heard the word never heard God's desire for our victory never come to understand what God did in sending Jesus to accomplish our victory I don't get why people don't get hungry Now, I know the answer. The answer is they're distracted. The Bible talks about after Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. It says there were occasions, there was at least one occasion, where more than 500 people saw Jesus alive after his resurrection. More than 500 people saw him alive. Now, here's my question. Why are there only 120 in the upper room? where are the other 380 now folks if you see somebody raised from the dead you watch them die you see them alive afterwards what is big enough or important enough to distract you from getting to the bottom of that and it's not like he was just some random guy it's not like one of the, the, uh, uh, the thieves that were crucified on either side of Jesus that they were raised from the dead who would care about that But the miracle worker, the one that claimed he was sent from God, more than 500 people at one time in one occasion saw him raised from the dead or saw that he had been raised from the dead, saw that he was alive. Boy, to get distracted from that would take something, wouldn't it? But that's how people live their lives. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. As we've said before, Jesus made a distinction between believers and disciples. Well, then could we say that a successful Christian life would certainly entail becoming a disciple? And we see the source of that, which is the word of God. And notice the added benefit. It says, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 12. I remember when I was in uh, high school, the Sunday school group that I was a part of, did a study on Hebrews chapter 11 and it was mostly about the people that, were, that made the list of the Hall of Fame of Faith people and I remember specifically when we went over Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 it says but without faith it's impossible to please God for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And I remember asking the, uh, one of my uh, good friends' uh, mom was uh, teaching the class, and she was a, um, uh, a school teacher and the, at the school that we all went to. And I remember asking her, what does it mean when it talks about God being a rewarder of people that seek him? And she did her best. She tried to uh, to answer the question. But it didn't satisfy me. And I remember thinking at the time. We don't believe God's a rewarder for, about anything until we get to heaven. We think about God's reward as being going to heaven when we die. But there was something about that verse that stuck with me. Must believe that he's a rewarder. Must believe that he is first. Meaning he is who he says he is in the word. Well you got to continue in the word to find out what that is and to believe that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him we didn't believe that at all at least we didn't live like we believed it there might have been some brave soul somewhere that was believing but that's not the the way that we lived now in Romans chapter 12 verse 1 remember again Jesus said take my yoke upon you and learn of me what does he want us to learn? Well, we've already seen in Isaiah 55 that he wants us to learn his thoughts. He wants us to think his thoughts. He wants us to, to operate according to his way of thinking and not the world's. Romans 12:1 I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That phrase reasonable service really means, literally means, and most translations translate this according to the actual meaning. It means spiritual worship. You remember in in, uh, John chapter 4 when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well of Samaria. He says, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, we know truth is the word. John 17, 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them, Father, through thy word. Thy word is truth. So God is a spirit, and he's looking for his children to worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship him according to the word would be worshiping him in truth. But worshiping him in spirit is identified in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 as presenting your body a living sacrifice. Presenting your body a living sacrifice. Now, folks, realize how far Paul's come. In chapter seven, he's talking about his experience where he couldn't control his flesh. Chapter eight, he talks about the, coming to the understanding that there's no condemnation to him or upon him from God, never would be, because of the law of the spirit of life that he's been born into when he came to know Jesus. Now, in chapter 12, he's talking about how to worship in truth. By presenting your body a living sacrifice. So from chapter 7 where he can't control his body. To chapter 12 where he's explaining how he brings his body under discipline. The thing that makes the difference. Is his knowledge of who Jesus is and the application of the word. The power of the word of God in other words. Folks in the church I grew up in. And I I hope this doesn't sound like I'm throwing off on these people. Because I'm not. I love them with all my heart. But nobody expected to really get an answer to prayer. Now here's another part of that that I don't understand. If something doesn't work, why do people keep doing it? I came to the place where I really didn't pray for anything. I talked to God. I recognized his voice on the inside of me. Again, I didn't know anything about being led by the Spirit or how to take advantage of the Word of God and use it as a weapon to defeat the enemy in my life. I didn't understand any of those things. But I remember from an early age something about this prayer. And we'd quote John 16, 23. In that day you'll ask me nothing, but whatsoever you ask the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. I know that prayer was supposed to work, but I just knew that ours didn't. Well, if you don't know that prayer is supposed to work and you don't spend much time in prayer, it's a pretty sure thing that you're not going to have much of an effective prayer life. How can you be a successful Christian if you don't have a successful prayer life? Without question, God wants us to rely on him. Without question, he wants us to come to him. Without question, he wants to be the one that blesses us and rewards us. But if you don't know those things, then you can't make them a reality in your life. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service or spiritual worship. Here's what worshiping in spirit is all about. It's keeping your body under. It's letting your spirit dominate your flesh. Verse 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What is learning of Jesus going to do for us? It's going to cause us to have a renewed mind. What is continuing in the word of God going to do for the believer? It's going to renew his mind to God's thoughts. Every situation that we encounter in this life, every situation, every physical conflict, every physical uh, difficulty that we encounter in this life, the Bible tells us that there is a specific and certain way that we should think, and it's different from the way that the world thinks. Then that necessitates, and this is what really being renewed in the spirit of your mind is all about. It necessitates that every time we come up on a situation in life, we ask ourselves first and foremost, what does the word say? In other words, what does the Bible tell us God thinks about this? And the word's the only source of that information. It's the only source of that information. Finally, folks, turn with me to First John chapter 5. Notice in verse 4, it says, For whatsoever, literally whosoever, is born of God, overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. <clears throat> now, if John's writing by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, and if he's not, we ought to tear this page out. But if John's writing by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, it tells us specifically It confirms what Paul told us in Romans chapter 8 that we're more than conquerors through all the things that God has done for us over all the circumstances of the earth, over all the difficulties, over all the, the obstructions, over all the work that the enemy throws in our path to try to detour us or rob us of God's blessing. Here the Holy Ghost is telling us the same thing in different terms or different words. He's saying, whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. That means there is the potential in every one of us from the least to the greatest. There is the potential for each and every one of us to live in total and absolute victory over the enemy. One thing that was a difficulty for me growing up is that the church did not know. And since they didn't know, they couldn't tell me. The church didn't know what God was doing and didn't know what the devil was doing somebody had come down with sickness or disease and there was always the question always the thought that maybe God did this for some unseen purpose well if you don't know what side of the the issue God's on then you're certainly never going to know your opponent and if you don't know your opponent you can't defeat your opponent so that played into a big part or uh, made up a big part of the things that we knew and didn't know but here John is saying by the Holy Ghost, whosoever is born of God is already equipped to defeat every aspect of the devil in his life. Every attack. Now what brings about that victory? And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Now folks, that... that um, the way that scripture is constructed on one hand doesn't make any sense thinking naturally it doesn't make any sense because what it should say if we're thinking naturally is whosoever is born of God overcometh the world and this is the means of victory even our faith but that's not what it says what it says is faith is the victory. Faith is not the way to victory. Faith in itself is the victory. Well, we know what faith is. We know the same, uh, we know that faith works the same in every area in every respect. We know specifically how people get saved. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. How does faith work for salvation? Well, in Romans chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, Paul said, If you confess Jesus as Lord and believe God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So Paul is telling us that faith works for salvation by believing in your heart and saying with your mouth. Jesus said the same thing in Mark chapter 11. Not just about salvation or being born again, but about anything, uh, any way that we operate in this life. He said, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Verse 24, Therefore I say unto you, What things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. So the principle of faith is identified by Jesus very specifically, very plainly. Believe in your heart. Or believe what God's word says, he thinks, and speak it out of your mouth. And it'll bring supernatural results. It'll bring mountain moving results. John's saying that faith, believing in your heart and speaking with your mouth, he's saying that faith is the victory. So, what he's saying is, and you'll understand it when you uh, gain a greater understanding of God's character and nature what the Holy Ghost is telling us through John in these verses is that the battle is won as soon as you extend your faith not when things change not when things look different faith is the victory not faith brings the victory faith is the victory because heaven and earth shall pass away but his word can never fail so at the spoken word at the point where you choose to believe what God's word says rather than what you can see and feel The moment you speak the word of faith, that victory becomes yours. That victory becomes yours. That's why it's an easy thing for us to just thank God for the answer. That's why Abraham was strong in faith, giving glory to God before he ever saw the answer realized. He became so convinced of the partner, covenant partner that he had, and the truth of his word, the truth of his promises. He glorified God before he saw the answer. Well when did he get the victory? When Isaac was born or when he thanked God for the answer? As far as God was concerned it was done when he praised him for the answer. Jesus made statements like through faith and through the operation of faith nothing shall be impossible unto you. Nothing shall be impossible the surety of his word as we quoted several times heaven and earth shall pass away but my words will never fail the word of God is more sure than anything and everything that you see the word of God is more sure than the foundations of the mountains that we look at things that would be impossible like moving mountains to people operating in natural strength God said that's no big deal Because his word carries even more power than the strength of the mountain. Folks, there is nothing more powerful than the universe. In fact, the universe was created by the power of God's word spoken. And that's how he tells us to operate in our lives. What does the successful Christian life look like? It's a life of victory. It's a life that can say just as Jesus said, Father, I thank you, hear me always. I thank you that you hear me always. I thank you that you hear me always. A successful Christian life is one that does the works of Jesus. A successful Christian life is one that can say just as Jesus said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. A successful Christian life is one of total and complete victory. A life of freedom because of the truth of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. The fact that you have revealed your word to us. You've identified your thoughts. You've revealed your ways. You've revealed your righteousness. You've revealed that through righteousness we can reign in life. You've revealed your goodness to us. Father, let us not take one of these things for granted. Help us, Holy Spirit, to be the people of God that Jesus' blood has made us to be. Bring to our remembrance the word of God that we can be doers thereof. Lord, let us say, even as Jesus said, he that seen me has seen the Father. Bring us to that place of victory through our own understanding and through the actions of our own heart through faith. We ask you these things believing, Father, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Before we go, we've got a prayer request that I want you to agree with me on. Mike Herman's having some surgery this month, and he's asked us to agree with him for wisdom for the doctors and the medical team. And that it will be a supernatural recovery. Can we agree on that? Let's all stand. Let's pray. Father in Jesus name we pray for our brother Mike. We thank you Father. For guiding the doctor's hands. We ask Father that you would give the doctor wisdom beyond his medical knowledge. That they would be able to clearly and easily find the problem. And correct it. And we pray, Father, for a supernatural and speedy recovery. One in such a manner that the doctors themselves are amazed. We ask you to do these things in agreement and prayer. In the precious name of Jesus. And everybody that agrees, say amen. 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 Praise the Lord. God bless you. Have a great day. Come on back tonight for healing school if you can.